I'm David Wood, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Caroline Shaw. Ms. Shaw is a multifaceted musician, violinist, singer, and composer. She won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize in music for her Partita for Eight Voices, the first time it has ever been awarded for an unaccompanied vocal work. She's also the only the fifth woman to receive the prize in its 70 years, and at 30 years old, she was the youngest person ever to win. She has degrees from Rice and Yale and is currently a doctoral fellow in composition at Princeton. She performs regularly as a violinist with the American Contemporary Music Ensemble and is a vocalist with the groundbreaking group Roomful of Teeth. Caroline Shaw, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, David. You've described your music as kind of like sashimi. What did you mean by that? <laughs> in that case, I was referring specifically to a piece called Gustave Le Gray that is written for solo piano. But um, I do think of, yeah, quite a lot of my music as presenting um, certain musical material in its raw, I think, raw, unadorned form. So just sort of one simple chord or a couple of simple chords um, without a lot of adornment rhythmically or, or melodically. You have said that you don't particularly like to be called a composer, but just simply musician. What's the reason behind that? Um, I think musician is a sort of more inclusive word, both in terms of the, the roles that I personally have as um, violinist and singer and and writer of music. But also I think it's potentially more inclusive in terms of uh, how m- musicians of other styles and cultures and backgrounds work. So... Um, for instance, someone who's writing songs in a band or um, who is a jazz improviser may not necessarily refer to themselves as a composer, but they're also they're writing music in a very interesting way. And you're splitting your time between several ensembles, so writing isn't your sole outlet for music, correct? Correct. Um, and technically, uh, until this year, uh, all of my income was from performing, so... It's a huge part of my identity. So what was it like when you received, I assume, a phone call that you were <laughs> going to be uh, awarded the Pulitzer? Yes, I got a phone call in the afternoon on April 15th, but not from any official source. It was from my friend Jeremy Faust, who's a, a very funny guy, and um, you know, called me in the afternoon and said, what, did you just, you know, did you just win a Pulitzer Prize? I don't, they, they don't actually notify you officially until two days later in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And you submitted the work sort of on a, on a lark, mm-hmm. I suppose. What made you decide to, to turn this particular piece in? Well, I, I mean, I am very proud of the piece of music, but um, I think the real impetus was that uh, Roomful of Teeth, this vocal ensemble that I sing in and, and have written for, um, is a really remarkable ensemble, and I wanted more people to know about it um, and to know about this this piece of music and sort of the colors that we're after. So literally the application fee was $50, and um, I thought that's cheaper than taking some of these wonderful jury members out to dinner to tell them about this group. That would be more expensive. Um, so it was it was on a lark. I'm, I'm, uh, it was a very surprising result. Um. <laughs> and how do you feel to be the first to have won this for an unaccompanied vocal work? I'm very honored. I, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly honored um, to receive the award. I, I think it's a 
it's a groundbreaking moment for uh, acapella music, for vocal music, thinking about the human voice, potentially for choral music. Um, actually, just I've been having a lot of conversations about the significance of this work in the larger context of choral music, particularly American choral music. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. You weren't originally, in terms of your trajectory for music, a singer from the beginning, mm-hmm. at least not in training. You were a violinist, having started quite young. Mm-hmm. Uh, how young did you start? I don't really remember, but um, apparently I was two. Uh, my mom was a violin teacher. My two older brothers played violin, so there were violins all over the house, and it was just a part of how I grew up. I grew up with the Suzuki method, which is the idea that you learn learn music at the same time you're learning a language, just learning to speak. So it was really sort of learning n- notes and melody and rhythm was at the same time as I was learning English syntax kind of intuitively. And I know your master's is in violin. Is mm-hmm. your bachelor's in violin as well? That's right. Mm-hmm. From Rice. From Rice. I studied with a really wonderful teacher, Kathy Winkler, who actually have, has been at Bloomington. I think she got her master's degree here. <laughs> After your time in Rice, you or at the end of your time at Rice, you received an interesting scholarship, the Galliard, mm-hmm. which took you to Sweden and fiddling. Can you explain that? A little known corner of my life. After my freshman year of college, I um, there's a there's a really funky little scholarship called the Galliard Fellowship at at Rice where you um, kind of dream up a crazy idea what you want to do. And some people say I want to research beer making in in Germany all summer long. And I said I want to um, busk on the street and study Swedish and just Scandinavian folk music. So I spent. Um, a month, month and a half or so, traveling around Sweden to these Spelmannstemmas, which are fiddling festivals, um, learning a lot of new tunes and just meeting a lot of people. I went to Norway and Denmark as well, but Sweden was the was the big focus. And also ha- half of that trip was um, kind of exploring what it was like to be a street musician. So I, I've played on the on corners in Oslo and Stockholm and Copenhagen and a few cities in Germany. <laughs> How do you think that has since informed your career as a musician? In ways that I'm still discovering now, I think the biggest, you know, one of the biggest um, gifts that that summer gave me was a sense of um, f- freedom with my playing in a way and freedom to um, explore new corners of the world and to not stick necessarily to the exact plan that my instructors had always sort of laid out for me. Um, Also to discover a a joy of making music simply with a violin with other people. And it's kind of hard to describe that, but there's something beautiful about um, simple sharing of acoustic music that I hold very dear. Let's back up a little bit and talk about how you got into the vocal side of things. Mm-hmm. When did you first start singing sort of outside of the household? Well, I, I started singing in church choir when I was very little at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. So that was a big part of my singing growing up. I was always really shy with singing because my mom is a soprano and she's a beautiful singer. And um, violin, I always felt to be my my voice. And, you know, it's... Um, 
singing is very vulnerable. And if and I didn't start uh, just to back up. I so in St. Paul's Episcopal Church, um, the organist who came when I was seven years old, the new organist choir master was Jeanette Fischel, who is the head of the organ department here. She's been a huge part of my growing up. And then I went to college and started. I sang for a little bit in an a cappella group for a couple of years. And then not really again much until grad school when I went to Yale and needed to, you know, pay my rent and pay my tuition and things and started getting jobs in church choirs, paid jobs. And uh, because I have, I can read the notes. I did wasn't a very great singer, but I could um, sing the right notes at the right time. And then uh, through that, just went through an enormous amount of repertoire and develop, found a way to develop my voice. And I tend to be the glue inside of an ensemble. So I'm an alto rather than a solo role. I usually the person who's, who kind of blends two voices together, which I like. Yeah. You've mentioned your mother as a musical influence in your life. You've mm-hmm. just mentioned Jeanette Fischel. Who would you say are some other musical influences, either in your writing or just in general? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's certainly some some of my other former teachers, Kathy Winkler and John O'Brien from Greenville, and um, some others. And then, in terms of composers, I'm I wish I had a really cool answer to say for someone who's like living right now that I admire. I'm actually a very classical person. I adore I adore Bach, and Mozart is my first love, and I still go back to those. In terms of um, their elegance, but also complexity, and and then there's some other contemporary artists who are not working in the classical world that actually I've also found really inspiring. One is Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. Tune Yards is an indie rock band, um, which she really started as a solo project, and um, she's a very brave, brave musician who. Um, uh, is not afraid to use her voice in an unusual way and um, has a very strong theatrical presence on stage. So I, I've even writing actually one of the pieces in Partita Aleman that kind of channeled this very weird, unusual s- sense of music that I think she has. Back in January of 2011, on the 29th, Milton Babbitt died. And on the same day, you wrote in your <laughs> blog, sometime today, just a few miles from here, probably this morning while I was knee-deep in snow, Milton Babbitt passed away. I never got a chance to meet him, although I am now adrift somewhere in his broad legacy. <laughs> I'm not sure we would have been best friends, but I really wish I could have talked to him sometime. What would you have asked him? First, I'd like to ask him about this musical that he wrote. I think he really liked musicals. <laughs> I think he was a really, uh, from what I've heard, a really funny, clever guy, very, you know, of course, brilliant. I would have asked him uh, a question that I don't really believe is a real question, but I like asking it people anyway. What is your absolute favorite piece of music? Well, let me turn that around. What would you say is your absolute favorite piece of music? Absolute favorite piece. <laughs> There's certain things, you know, you remember, that, oh, I, I'm always really affected by that and so you know they're they're like there's a little Mozart sonata piano sonata I think it's K330 and it's just the most perfect thing um and then there's the second act of Verdi's La Traviata that has this particular shift that I think is also one of the most perfect things ever written in music um 
the Bach, the Agnus Dei from the B minor Mass, one of my favorite things. There are probably some songs in there. And I think I saw <laughs> in your blog someplace that the uh, the finale to Marriage of, Marriage of Figaro was up there too. Yes. Well, that's probably my most um, literally blissful moment, and I'll explain that word in a second, of music. As you mentioned, the last the last scene of Marriage of Figaro. So there's this beautiful scene where the countess forgives the count. He's on his knees. He asks for forgiveness. She does forgive him, and there's a beautiful chorus around it. And in fall of 2012, 2011, fall of 2011, I was part of this performance art piece by an Icelandic artist, Ranyar Kjartansen, who does these sort of long-form performance art. Sometimes it's, you know, over a day, sometimes it's over a month. And in this case, he did a fully staged version of this three-and-a-half-minute segment of Marriage of Figaro for 12 hours. And I played in the pit orchestra for that. And um, when I say fully staged, I mean full, full on. Everyone's in period costume on the stage, acting everything out. There's real food on stage because we had to do it for 12 hours. So the, the fake food that usually throw was actually real because we all had to eat. And I only left the pit one time in those 12 hours. Um, and I realized I didn't want to leave again because I felt like I was missing something. And so every three and a half minutes, we would get to this dominant chord that hangs and then it would restart again and to feel the repetition of something as sublime as that moment I was nervous that it would destroy it for me but instead it's actually um, I want to cry when I ever I think about it and a very unusual musical experience let's talk about the Pulitzer Prize winning work the partita for eight voices you wrote it over three separate summers for a group you've already mentioned room full of teeth and I've read other places that in terms of parts of this actual work, it becomes very apropos because of some of the extended vocal techniques and sort of the mm-hmm. the uh, grimace that comes as part of doing some of those things, just innately creating some of those sounds. Mm-hmm. Why was the piece so, I'll call it slow, coming together? Why was it Three Summers? Three Summers just practically because I writing music is not a big focus for me so the the opportunities to write for someone are very were very rare and the very first summer we got together 2009 we uh Roomful of Teeth had never we'd never performed before we had these eight singers we had this big dream to try to see if it worked and uh I was the director said if anyone would like to try and write a piece for these new sounds and this group feel free we have a concert in 3 weeks and I wrote Pasacalia and that was really the beginning. And the next summer I said, I really want to, we were working with Inuit throat singers, which is this interesting um, tradition of passing little patterns back and forth, and a lot of deep breathing. And I thought, I'd absolutely know what this is going to be. This is going to be a current. It's going to be um, this bed of sort of quilted breath sound in a 6-4 um, a slash 3-2 meter. <laughs> Why and was it so specific? Why what what brought that that form to your brain with with the throat singing? With the throat singing, um, well, it's it's naturally lends itself to a a rhythmic bed, and just the sort of play on words. Courant originally means to run or to running. That's the origin of the word. So um, the the courant is a in a three or sort of triple meter 
passing back and forth. And I'd been thinking that for previous summer, I was thinking of Solowitz. So the Pasakali uses text from Solowitz while drawing directions. And I'd been trying to think of all the just different aspects of what Solowitz's work and paintings mean to me. And I'd read this article about someone calling Solowitz a textile artist in a way. So it's like he's sort of designing weaving um, or designing a quilt. I thought, oh, that's such an interesting idea. And just sort of started thinking about quilting and weaving and this woven bed of sound. So that's where Courant came from. You know, I would have written more, but I was rehearsing all day and re- doing learning techniques. And I would just had time from about 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. every night. That's when I would write. And the next summer, we um, I wrote Alamond and Sarabande. And those also drew from different techniques we were studying in the summer. You mentioned Solowitz wall drawings. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has has seen that installation, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe is still on display through 2033 mm-hmm. uh, at uh, Mass Mocha, right? And could you describe that a little bit, or at least how you how you experienced wall drawings and and how that influenced this music? Mm-hmm. Well, there's um, an immensity to these paintings, so they. Um, if you imagine, you know, one of the largest largest art galleries you've ever seen, and then take the entire wall of that, and there are, I think, three or four different levels of this exhibit, and it goes from Solowitz's early work, which is a little bit more muted, there are the more pencil drawings, um, and then going up to the top floor, the colors get brighter. Um, so imagine an entire wall filled with bright orange and green squiggly lines, or primary color, geometric, um, square, right-angled forms. So it's you're kind of s- surrounded and enveloped by this uh, bright graphic design. And Solowit is interesting because he, um, rather than ma- making the paintings themselves, he writes directions to tell you how to make the painting, which is, um, you know, it's like a, an arc, like a, a, they're draftsman's directions, really. And I like musical notation, I like code, I like HTML and CSS code and the way you sort of write this code and it makes a website, that's brilliant. Or you write notes and it makes sound. And he's um, uh, sort of doing a similar thing, writing a code to make colors and lines and images on the wall. So the piece, the Partita for Eight Voices, at its fundamental level is based on Baroque dance forms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you've already mentioned uh, your preference for the music of Bach. Is there any other reason why you you chose these dance forms, most of which are sort of part of the the essential dance suite that um, a music student would learn in their <laughs> undergrad? Is there a reason why you chose the dance forms? Well, um, I do like the partita, the, the Baroque suite, as, as a, a, f- a form of kind of framing unusual material. So... Um, it is sort of a, a way into some of these unusual sounds, but also I, I grew up playing the Bach partitas on solo violin, so that's a huge part of of my growing up, and a little bit of the French suites and piano. And I liked the way that Bach, when he was writing his violin partitas, wasn't saying, I'm just writing a, f- a French suite. I'm saying, oh, what is the French suite? What does it mean to me? What can I do differently? Um, and he's play- having a lot of fun with it. Another aspect to this is that a lot of the work that I first did out of grad school when I was in New Haven in New York was playing for dance classes, modern dance classes and ballet. Um, and I especially love ballet because it's 
I don't know, it's this very rigorous technical form. It's kind of interesting to watch and do. And I would um, often be playing violin, sometimes piano, and would need to improvise music in a certain, often in a certain rhythm and meter to support the dancers. And, you know, I've played, sort of made up thousands of hours of music, really. And sometimes it's a wonderful experience. Sometimes it's a very crazy experience where someone is literally just counting off five, six, seven, eight, go. (laughs) And their music comes out. That experience must have been a little more than frightening. It must have been maybe exhilarating. How did you get into doing that? Did you just answer a one ad? Yeah, and, and you also did some percussion. No one knows about the percussion. That was when I was at Wesleyan. It's a very free, open, modern dance place. So I, <laughs> the music no one will ever hear, I hope. I got into that because I, I think, well, after college, I had a Watson Fellowship. And I lived in Europe for a year by myself. And there was this one time where I, just through very random circumstances, was in Brussels and um, was playing on the street and met somebody who said, hey, I've got this show to put on with a dancer. Can you come play violin? And, you know, me being very just, okay, I'll try this new thing. Um, I loved that one experience and and then um, had the opportunity after grad school to take a friend's job playing for a dance class. And I'd never done it before, but I thought, well, I'm a good musician. I'll figure it out. (laughs) And um, I decided this is not going to be scary and it's not going to be it's going to be a really wonderful challenge, and I'm going to um, try and do it 150% all the time. It was luck. But then I started to sort of seek these chances out to play for classes and pay my rent. Before we talk more about the Partita, maybe you could explain a little bit the, the Watson Fellowship that you received. It's a, a very interesting fellowship from what I understand in an entire year, but maybe you could explain that a little bit, what you did particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to the to the Watson Foundation for giving me this fellowship. It was a chance for me to leave the U.S. for a year. One of the stipulations is that you uh, don't return to your home country for a year, and you're not enrolled in a school, so it's unlike the Fulbright, and you're not sort of just doing an internship or a job somewhere. So really pursuing an independent project um, with mentors around, but essentially by yourself. And I have been obsessed with architecture and aesthetics, and I sort of became more interested in landscape architecture and garden design and the way in the 17th and 18th centuries people were writing about um, aesthetics specifically related to garden design. So the two big differences were the French formal garden, which is very... um, symmetric and and I, don't know, I find it very logical and organized and maybe a little bit artificial but in an interesting way versus the in- English landscape garden which is very romantic and rolling and meant to simulate nature and these are very interesting ways of also thinking about music so I spent a year looking traveling around and looking at a lot of different gardens thinking about um, how they would translate in my mind to music I was writing also some music for string quartet trying to translate visual ideas into music, but not always in such a literal way, thinking about the different ways that you can do that. And um, I put those pieces away for a while, and I think that those experience, experiences are, are bubbling up in the music that I'm writing now, which is really interesting. You're listening to WFIU's Profiles. 
Let's hear a selection from Caroline Shaw's Pulitzer Prize-winning Partita for Eight Voices. This is the final movement, the Passacaglia, performed by the ensemble Room Full of Teeth, directed by Brad Wells, an ensemble which includes Caroline Shaw herself as one of the altos. This recording is nominated in three categories in the 2014 Grammy Awards, Best Engineer for a Classical Album, Best Chamber Music Small Ensemble Performance, and Best Contemporary Classical Composition. Going back to the piece itself, could you explain some of the different techniques and different approaches that Roomful of Teeth is taking and that you incorporated into this work? We've talked about the the, the throat singing, mm-hmm. but there are some very non-traditional uh, ways of, of singing here, vowel sounds that singers don't tend to yeah. s- spend a lot of time on and ways of emphasizing breath. How did you come to incorporate those? Hmm. I'm glad you asked about that because often um, the kind of go-to sexy topic about room full of teeth is, oh, they're tube and throat singers. Are they yodeling and, and belting and all these techniques that seem, um, you know, very foreign and, and potentially, you know, people th- worry about them. But a lot of what we do is just very subtle things, as you said, with vowels. Um, I think about vowel color a lot. And of course, all you know, choral musicians do, but divorcing that from words. So a lot of partita has no words, so I could really just play with the color. Uh, for instance, Pasacalia is really based on the idea of hearing this same phrase, same harmonic progression, and three slightly different forms. Um, one is with a covered vowel, like O, and then the second one is ah, with a brighter sound, kind of more in your chest voice, with a little sort of click into your head voice. And then the third iteration is a really bright ah, which you can you can describe as a as a belt, but it can also be achieved really by just changing your vowel. Actually, a lot of the partita is, is indicated with IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, rather than words, because I think that's such an interesting way of of thinking about the instrument. And it probably comes from my being a violinist first and a singer second. So that I think of tone color and all these subtle colors that we're getting as an instrument rather than just as a singer singing about something. Some of the breaths that happen in Courant, I think, um, are a little, it's a little initially jarring, but the, the background for that is um, this Inuit throat singing tradition. So the idea that you're passing just a simple breath, a textured breath back and forth. 
And then I gradually added pitch in to kind of create this woven quality, the woven rhythmic quality we're talking about. And then I do incorporate hume and sugut and kagura, which are three different kinds of tube and throat singing, in several of the works. Um, well, actually in all of them. And it's, it's such an interesting quality. I think of it like adding a bassoon or an English horn or thinking of this other color that you can use. And sometimes we incorporate the overtones that come out of this technique. But often it's just the, the, the quality of that sound, I think, is really interesting and how it blends with, you know, the traditional English choral sound that um, a lot of the singers in Room Full of Teeth work with in our other jobs. So it's one thing to put this music in front of a group like Room Full of Teeth. You've all sort of come to these techniques at the same time. Mm-hmm. What's it like introducing it to to others outside of the group in <laughs> terms of, of, of performance? Well, the live performance experience of Room Full of Teeth is something that it's hard to describe. It really shouldn't be missed. Um, it's very exciting. And people are coming in expecting it eight-voice ensemble singing singing something similar to a cappella or choir and are suddenly you know introduced to sounds that are maybe have not been heard before but also are mixed together in an interesting way i don't know i find it really exciting we just came off of a little west coast tour so we were in seattle and portland and california and um people went went a little nuts for it so i'm excited to keep singing it around the country or other ensembles approaching you wanting to perform the works? Yeah, I think people don't quite know what they're getting into. I would love, you know, down the road for other groups to perform it. But right now, it's it's written very specifically for these eight singers who have these particular knowledge and um, we have a shared language with with each other. So translating, just giving that to another group is, at this point, really impossible and not advisable. But for the first time ever, I'm really excited. We're going to hear it with Notice, which is uh, Dominic Diorio's contemporary music ensemble here at IU. It's a 24-voice choir, and they're going to do Pascalia for the first time. Um, and it's really exciting. It's it's a different version from what Roomful of Teeth does, but um, I think it's the beginning of a new road. Yeah. You've said that one secret hope in winning the Pulitzer was that you might have a choreographer. <laughs> you know, I said that on the day. I just, it would be cool to see it choreographed, but at the same time, I'm very particular about choreographers that I like. <laughs> yeah. So there's a line from T.S. Eliot that crops up in, in several of your works, not just within uh, the Partita. It's from his Burnt Norton, which is the first poem in his four quartets. And the line is, the detail of the pattern is movement. What does that mean to you? Hmm. I don't know if you've ever had a, you know, a prayer or a mantra or something that you say and you repeat. And it kind of loses meaning after, <laughs> after repetition. And maybe you can find it again over the years. But that's kind of what that phrase is, has really become for me. I like the kind of confusing, very abstract, ephemeral, visual aspect of it. The detail of the pattern is movement. But it's also a very confusing phrase. It also reminds me a little bit of something that could be part of uh, Lewitt's installation. Mm-hmm. Like it's a word that's similar 
to the instructions that you might find in in his pieces. I also mm-hmm. found it interesting that um, that Burton Norton is part of uh, the Cotswolds, and one of the major mm-hmm. aspects of of or. Burton Norton refers to the Cotswolds, and one of the major aspects within Burton Norton is images of a garden. Mm-hmm. And I found that very interesting. Does that have anything to do with the the fellowship that you had, the Watson? I think that fellowship is cropping up in strange ways all over my life, and it's surprising me. And um, a lot of those very distant memories of being in gardens and thinking about space um, – is a deep, deep part of how I think about music. So, yes, probably. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the non-vocal side of your career as a violinist and performing with uh, many of the of the great contemporary music ensembles that are out there right now, including the uh, American Contemporary Music Ensemble. What are you seeing as patterns, trends in contemporary music these days? Well, there's so many different corners of it right now, which is exciting. I mean, I can speak to at least the scene in in New York and some other other parts. There's no one particular direction, which is exciting. And a lot of us are friends with each other. So I'd say the repertoire that ACME, American Contemporary Music Ensemble, does is very different from what ICE, International Contemporary Ensemble, does. And, and in very different ways, we have different approaches, but we're also know each other and friends. Are there types of compositions, are there particular groupings of ensembles that you're you're seeing uh, that are sort of defining maybe what the early 21st century, uh, when people look back, mm. how, how they will group that and classify it? Are you noticing any, anything that's starting to stand out above the rest as... Uh, the main focus. The main focus. I I would hesitate to say the main focus, but I know that a lot of what I am currently involved in, just a lot of my colleagues, um, is exploring collaborating with indie rock musicians. A lot of these indie rock musicians are classical musicians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the thing. It's not. Um, it's not crossing over anymore. We're all coming from similar similar backgrounds and approaching. Um, complexity and sometimes song form or long forms in in ways that I think haven't been done before. There's a really wonderful dialogue happening. It's still taking shape, and we're finding our finding our way with it. So indie classical is a, a genre that people are sort of talking about. This crossover between. Uh, I'm going to call them pop musicians, but musicians who are playing in non-strictly classical styles and classical musicians fusing what they're doing together. Um, you find people from uh, Arcade Fire who are writing pieces for, you know, larger, more classical ensembles. Or, uh, Richard you Reed Perry, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you mentioned, uh, and you've worked yourself with Alarmal Sound, mm-hmm. and that seems to be opening up the world of what we've called classical music for a long time to a different audience, particularly in 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 the Northeast and uh, in more metropolitan areas of the Northeast. Have you found yourself sometimes more uh, performing in groups that you would classify as less classical at this point? Have you found mm-hmm. yourself doing anything outside of what you were 
trained for in Rice and Yale? Um, definitely outside of what I think the institutions I came from were expecting me to be trained for. But I feel very, tra- actually, they trained me exactly for what I'm doing now. And I do find myself playing um, music that's not, you know, not necessarily Brahms or Bach or Stravinsky or anything in this in this classical canon, but also is informed by it. And the, a lot of the techniques that I learned through playing those that music, I'm bringing into the music that I'm playing now. So, I mean, for instance, singing with Room Full of Teeth, like we're we're all kind of a classical ensemble. And we all read music in a very serious way and classically trained, but we're singing music by um, Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards and um, Cameron Mesereau of Glasser, who just came out with a new sort of electro album. And with Acme, I've played with ambient band um, Stars of the Lid and A Winged Victory for the Solon, um, as well as music by Steve Reich. So we're in Acme, I'm actually really, really excited about this group because we've played so many different kinds of music and a lot of it very good some things in film some things more indie rock or ambient music and some things straight up classical and from all those things we have a way of talking about music together it's a shared language shared vernacular we can say oh can you play that quasi baroque a little bit this way and we know exactly what we're talking about and we're using that to describe either Steve Reich or or some other kind of music by you know Bryce Desner the National or some or someone like that um, it's really exciting. I mean, it makes me think of when people played Baroque music, played Monteverdi. There's so little on the page. It's like, here are a few whole notes and some coordinates. And they found a way to talk about it with each other. So they had their own performance practice um, that governed the style and the, the music making. And today we're finding that in a different way. So, yeah, I think it's really exciting. One of my favorite things that I found while browsing your blog was a set of videos you did uh, right after s- the superstorm came through, after Sandy came through and took your power out. <laughs> and you did four covers of, of, of pop songs, uh, Dolly Parton, Michael Jackson, The Beatles, and Bonnie Raitt with flower pots. And and other instruments, including your violin. It seems we were just talking about, you know, the fusing of, of different genres. And that seems to have come out a little bit in, in those pieces. First of all, what made you think to, to, to do something like this and record it? Everything was shut down. Everything was dark. And I was just I'd during the day I'd walk up. 30 blocks to a friend's house to take a shower and then I'd walk back home and um, I had been writing a piece called Boris Kerner for um, cello and flower pots so I had all these flower pots in my house and um, thought wouldn't it be fun to make up a little song about this hurricane and um, it's funny I never you know then I would post them in the evening and it was I had a, I had a good time with it I, I don't know if it's related at all to any of the music that I write but it's definitely, I guess, indicative of my spirit, my, my feeling of it's just music. We're having fun, but we're going to do it really well and um, not take anything too seriously. My experience with watching several of the videos uh, of your music and some of the projects like the Richarnello, uh mm-hmm. project, which is a film, it's a multimedia experience, uh, is that your music is 
it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's very meticulously put together at the same time. What part of you tends to gain the most control? Is it the I want to explore a side or is it the I would like to order these few things? Hmm. I like organizing in a particular way so it feels the way that I want it to feel. But I think often in order to achieve that, it takes a great deal of of organization and planning. (laughs) Just like, you know, you see a beautiful website that's just you know, bright colors is very elegantly designed and has this a lightness to it. Or like a building, like a, you know, great architecture that has this lightness and air, airiness to it. But there's so much ordering and engineering and small parts and complexity underlying the simplicity. You mentioned that you spent a lot of the time writing Partita sort of between this 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. time. Is that still where you find yourself doing your, your creative work like this, or, or are, you, are you branching out? I have discovered, I've been trying out morning writing. That's actually a really wonderful thing. I like the times that are very quiet and isolated from everything else going on. I mean, I'm, I work with people all the time as a performer, and I, I can be very social, but when I'm making something... I I like to be away from absolutely everything, yeah. Are there ensembles or grouping of instruments that you'd really like to work for and work with as a composer? As a composer. Sure. Two things. One, I just thought about this morning, is I would love to hear a phalanx of bass trombones. I think that would be the most beautiful sound in the world. Um, very different from that is that I, oh, I love opera. I love older old opera. I love Mozart opera. I love that form um, of the stories that he tells and the particular ways he makes transitions and and moves me. Um, I don't think I'm ready yet to to write something quite the thing that I want to write, but ultimately would love to write a piece of, you know, whether you call it opera or musical theater or music theater, something that um, involves singing and and tells a story in a way that I find as compelling as some of the early operas. You are only the fifth woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize in music in 70 years of, of them being awarded. What does that mean to you? I'm, I'm very honored to receive the prize, and I think there's going to be a lot of great music to come by both men and women, and also people in different working in different genres. And I I look forward to the time when, you know, maybe gender isn't the distinguishing feature, but other factors are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that when you win the prize, they tell you and they list publicly sort of the reasons why they chose the piece, or at least to, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Do you get any other sort of feedback from the Pulitzer jury afterwards, or or is that really it? I mean, in a sense, yes, really, yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't know any of the jury members. They didn't know me. I have gotten to meet one of them. Um, it was really kind, and we had a nice conversation. And the others, uh, I look forward to meeting at some point. I'd love to to talk with them. But essentially, that is 
that is, you know, that's the only interaction we've had is through this little blurb through the Pulitzer. So at this point, what has been the most surprising thing that you've experienced having, you know, been put on a very public, national, international stage for winning (laughs) this. What is the most surprising thing that's happened so far? One of the coolest, most surprising things was recently um, Roomful of Teeth went out to Seattle to give a concert at Town Hall Seattle. And earlier in the morning that day, I went down to Tacoma, Washington to an arts high school. And it was my first, it was sort of my first outing as a, you know, proper composer speaking to (laughs) kids. I was a little bit nervous. I've never, suddenly I'm this person that people look up to. And it was thrilling to, um, to see their faces, to hear their questions, to see how interested they were in, in music and my work and, and what I'm doing and what Roomful of Teeth is doing. And it really hit me that suddenly I'm, um, I have a huge responsibility to be a role model for some of these young people um, in a way that I I haven't been before. That's very new to me, and um, I'm really excited about it. Are there any similar figures from your past that you can remember, someone that you might have seen speak, maybe that you, you, know, that you didn't work with on a very personal level, like one of your, your instructors or, or your mother? Are there other people who might have been in that place that you just were, hmm. that you remember? I I remember when I was in high school and there was a, I grew up in Greenville, North Carolina, there was the Cassatt String Quartet that came a couple times during the year. And they were very much that for me. There were, um, it was a string quartet, there were four women and they played, or they played Beethoven and Ravel. I'd never seen a string quartet play before and they spoke and talked to us and I, um, looked up to them in that partic- in that way when I was younger, and now um, we still don't know each other very well. But the composer David Lang is someone that I really admire from from a distance. We've talked to each other, but um, sometimes when I think, what you know, what should I be doing? How should I be thinking? What I really admire him, and he's kind of a hero of mine. Um, I think Kaya Sariaho also is someone I've I've never really, I've never gotten to meet, but um, I find to be a very inspiring person. What is it about those those two? Let's just use those two: David Lang and Kaya Sariaho. Are there things in particular that that you that you feel drawn to in what they're doing? Hmm. Musically, I mean, they're very very different, but I think they both have a there's sort of a humble quality to them personally, and also I feel like I can kind of sense in their music. There's a great respect for tradition and for craft and for the beauty of sound, but also for the sort of a poetic way of thinking about music. So not just music, not just these materials for their own sake, but how do these materials interact and what does it mean in a larger context, especially David Lang, I think, in that way. Are there any misconceptions about you or your work that you would like to take time to clear up (laughs) now that it seems that your email inbox is is overflowing? Are there any things that – are there misconceptions that you'd like to clear up? 
No, I really actually I don't have anything I need. I feel like I want to clear up right now. I kind of like the music and to speak for itself, and I'm happy to talk to anybody if they want to talk about it. I love music very deeply, so I feel pretty confident in that. I've been speaking today with musician Caroline Shaw. Thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you. (laughs) This is David Wood for Profiles. Thanks for listening. To close the program, we'll hear another movement from the Pulitzer Prize-winning composition by our guest, Caroline Shaw, the Partita for Eight Voices. Again, from the Grammy-nominated recording by Roomful of Teeth, directed by Brad Wells. This is the second movement, the Sarabande. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.